Uh, good morning. Um, just have to give me a little bit of time to get my electronic devices set up. I'm going to let you uh, into a little secret. I'm going to make a confession. Even my wife doesn't know this yet. I forgot my Bible this morning. That's not a great thing to do, especially if you're the visiting speaker. But, at, um, you know, if you, if you invite someone from Essex, that's what you're going to get. Um, what do we know about Essex? I, I, I just a quick little introduction about myself and my wife, Tina. Uh, yes, we come from Essex. Has anyone seen that program, the, you know, the reality TV show? Um, not that one. I was thinking of The Only Way is Essex. I don't, I don't want you to put your hand up if you watch it. I don't want, you might not want to admit to that. But um, Have you heard of it? Yeah. Well, my claim to fame is that uh, I used to live, well, we used to live only a few years ago. We've moved. We tried to get away from them. But we, we lived in the same street as a lot of the TOWIE crowd. You know, the, the, the only way is Essex. We used to see the sort of the Amy Childs and the Gemma Collins and all the rest of it. And, in fact, Gemma Collins had a, a shop in our road. And uh, when we used to, and, and do you know the Sugar Hut? Does that mean anything to anybody, the Sugar Hut? Well, the sugar, it doesn't matter. But the Sugar Hut is, um, that was just at the end of our road. And when we used to go out, walk the dog, or, or go up to the, the town centre, get some shopping, we'd often um, walk past and they'd have the cameras rolling. So if you're sort of thinking, oh, I think I recognise, he looks a little bit familiar, this chap. I'm, I'm probably in the only way is Essex, just walking past at some point. Or maybe not, I don't know. But... Uh, we, we've known um, some of the Bradbury family for many, many years. In fact, Richard was, was our leader way back when. Um, goodness knows how many years ago that was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't look any older, does he? Um, John, John Bradbury married Tina and I in 1986. <laughs> I know the day and the month. Just get a little bit hazy on the years. Uh, and, and in fact, John, John has had quite an impact in our life. Um, one of the things that John did, he, he taught at a Bible school um, when we were youngsters. And um, after a few years, he actually he took a few people in the church and he began to give them some sort of teaching and development and preparation for being able to preach. And that kind of got me started, really. So if I'm good today, you can thank John. Uh, if I'm bad, you can blame Richard because he invited me to, to speak to you. But I'm really excited. Let's get into the Word of God. I'm really excited to share with you um, from Mark's Gospel. If you'd like to turn to Mark's Gospel and chapter 10, we're going to read from the last part of the chapter. Beginning at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It was a bit louder than that, actually. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, and he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And so they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. 
And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. If I ever become famous for preaching one day, I'm still hopeful. And they start downloading my MP3s or whatever it is by, by that time. Uh, I would like this, this little talk to have a title. And it would be, The Man Who Stopped Jesus in His Tracks. The Man Who Stopped Jesus in His Tracks. Now there are some, there are some firsts and there are some lasts in this chapter. This was the last healing that Jesus performed on his way to Jerusalem. And he was going to Jerusalem for the last time. He was going there as many hundreds and in fact many thousands of people would be doing. He was going there to celebrate Passover. And of course Jesus knew at this time that he was going there specifically for the purpose of dying for us. The miracles were starting to draw to a close. And Jesus had done all of the miracles that proved that he was the Messiah. He taught his disciples, he taught the multitudes, he'd healed the sick. And the the religious leaders had already given their verdict on him. They'd rejected him. So on the way to Jerusalem, and he was going there knowing that he was going there to die with a focus and a determination, Set set his face towards Jerusalem, On the way, as we just read in this passage, he passed through Jericho. There was something about this man, Bartimaeus, that made Jesus stop. I want us to look at that this morning. What was it that he said? What was it that he did? What was it about him that could make Jesus, despite all his determination and what he was set his heart to do, He took time aside and responded to this man, Bartimaeus. Before we do that, I just want to address um, an apparent problem in the story. This this particular account um, about the the healing of the blind man, uh, it's in three Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've just read the account from Mark, and it it says, this is just one of the issues that I think we should just mention. It says that um, Jesus and his disciples, verse 46 together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. And a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside, begging. If you look at Luke's account, Luke 18.35 says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. So we may need to make up our mind there. Was it as Jesus was approaching Jericho? Or was it as he was leaving Jericho? Luke says he was approaching. Mark says he was leaving. Now, we could have a vote on it, but I think probably most of us are getting a bit sick of votes at the moment. In the last few years, we've had two general elections, a referendum, about to have another general election. So we, we won't vote on it. But, but what do you think? You know, who, who was right? Was it Luke? Jesus was approaching Jericho, or Mark, he was leaving Jericho. One of them's got to be right. Or perhaps both of them were wrong. 
What other possibility is there? Luke was right or Mark was right or they were both wrong. What other possibility is there? I saw someone whisper the answer there. Well, yes. They were both right. They were both right. You all know the story of of Jericho in the Old Testament, don't you? The the people of Israel marching round and and Joshua taking them round and blowing the trumpets and the the walls. God caused the walls to, to come crashing down and they overtook the city and totally destroyed it. Well, Joshua, um, he, he, he invoked a curse on, on, on the city at that time. And he said, curse before the Lord is the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he will lay its foundations. And at the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. That's not very nice, is it? But it was very powerful. It was a very powerful prophetic word. And uh, it's fulfilled for us. It's uh, in 1 Kings 16, 34. It says, in Ahab's days, Hiel the Bethelite rebuilt Jericho. And at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, he laid its foundation. And at the cost of Segub, his youngest, he set up its gates. According to the word, the Lord had spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. So Joshua was destroyed. And then it was rebuilt by this man who actually paid a very heavy price for rebuilding it. But by the time of Jesus, in Jesus' day, this Old Testament city of Jericho had become quite run down and and, um, derelict to a large degree. Um, Not very much of a population anymore. It was in decline. Nothing drastic had happened. It just had declined. And thanks to archaeologists, we know that Herod, there's a lot of bad things about Herod, but one thing he was good at was building. He built a new Jericho. It was about a mile or so south of the old city of Jericho. He built the new city of Jericho and he, he built his winter palace and all sorts of other stuff there. But it was, it was a kind of really hip happening place. It was where the, the kind of young, upwardly mobile, rich and famous lived. It was a fantastic city. <clears throat> it was just a, about a mile south of the original Jericho. So, as Jesus went into the old Jericho, I mean, you've got a, you've got a picture of the scene. He's on, a, he's on this journey from Galilee up in the north, somewhere about there, to Jerusalem, which was about there. And he had reached Jericho, which was about there. So he was most of the way. And he would go through the old city of Jericho. And then as he was leaving the old city of Jericho, he was also approaching the new city, Jericho. And so... Both the gospel writers are right. They're just speaking from a different perspective. And, you know, you can, you can actually approach the Bible in two ways, essentially, particularly looking at the gospels. There are quite a few accounts in the gospels that are repeated. And we get um, different accounts of the same event. You can either approach those things as contradictions or you can approach them as I do, as complementary facts that together build up the whole picture of what was happening. Mark and Luke, they, they give a slightly different account to Matthew. Matthew gives us more information. Uh, Matthew tells us that there was, in fact, a second man. So 
there were two blind men, but Mark and Luke just concentrate on one blind man. In fact, Mark goes the furthest in that he tells us the name. Without Mark, we wouldn't have known the name of Bartimaeus. I don't know why he told us his name. Maybe he knew him personally. Maybe he was well known in the local church. That's quite likely. But he tells us his name. It was Bartimaeus. One thing I do know is that that's a very honored thing to have the name recorded in the scriptures. So. I started to think, who else had their name recorded in the Gospels that Jesus healed? Not many. Any ideas? Who was named in the Gospels that Jesus healed, apart from Bartimaeus? Lazarus? Yes. I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead. I think that counts as a healing. That's a pretty dramatic one, isn't it? Um, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene um, had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. I guess that's a form of healing as well. That's two people. Um, I'll be impressed if you get anyone else. I couldn't think of any other people that had their names mentioned, had that honor. But Bartimaeus is named. So let's, let's go through the story and see what uh, we can draw out of this. It says that um, Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was going by with a crowd. He, and so he began to shout. And the, the word that is used in the Greek language there for shout is a very strong word. It's kratzo. And that's a word that means more than just shouted. It means he screamed. He shrieked. It's the, it's the same word that is translated in use to describe the, the cry of a raven, the, the, the scream that a raven gives out. So it's, it's an onomatopoeia, by the way. That's um, a word that actually sounds like the thing it is describing. So, like that. He screamed, he cried out. It's the same word that is used for a demon-possessed person shrieking. It's also used of a a pregnant woman in labor. So actually, if you pull all those things together, you've you've got a demonized pregnant raven giving birth. That's... I don't think that's quite the picture that was intended. But he, he was not just some kind of like politely, oh, you know, British kind of decorum. Oh, um, I wonder, excuse me, Jesus, if um, possibly you might maybe consider before you get to, oh, it's too late. Jesus is gone by then. He was determined to be heard. You might even say desperate. I'm not sure he was desperate, actually. I think he had faith and he knew that Jesus was going to heal him, but maybe. He was certainly determined. He knew and felt his need deeply. And there was no time. Jesus was walking past. There was no time for dither or delay, as Boris Johnson would say. There was no time to think about this. He just needed to be heard. And to be honest, I don't know about you. I, I think a lot of Christians are just perfectly lovely people, but sometimes they're a little bit too nice. I've, I've met lots of Christians that are just so nice. 
and so wanting to sort of like avoid, you know, offending anybody or or doing anything outrageous that, that they just actually are quite ineffective. And um, I don't think God called us to be nice. I don't think God really likes, if I'm honest, I don't think he likes lukewarmness. It says that in the Bible somewhere, doesn't it? Mm. He doesn't like lukewarmness. Jesus once said the greatest commandment of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. No, God doesn't want half-hearted, lukewarm, kind of take-it-or-leave-it Christians. He wants wholehearted, red-hot, grab-it-with-both-hands Christians. That's what I want to be. And, you know, you can make, as, as I'm saying this, you can make a decision in your heart and you can affirm in your heart right now that that's the kind of believer, the kind of disciple you want to be, wholehearted, on fire, willing to grasp what God has for you with both hands. Don't wait till the end for an altar call or something because it might not happen, but just respond in your heart in that sense and say to the Lord, yeah, that's the kind of believer I want to be wholehearted. I believe as a, as a church, this is just what I feel God's put on my heart to say, is that as a church, if you could see Jesus looking at you right now, he would be smiling. You'd see the smile of Jesus. He, he's really, he loves you. He thinks you're great. But I also think he would quite like you to be risk takers a little bit more, to be prepared to take a risk, to be prepared to be a little bit more radical than you even are. Just a little bit. Maybe bit is the key word there. It's, that's an anointed word. Just a bit. A bit more radical. Now, if we want to hear from God, then we can learn from Bartimaeus. And so, by the way, I'm not, I'm not advocating in the sense that he did, screaming and shouting. I'm not suggesting that we should have prayer meetings where everyone is screaming and shouting. But it's about the urgency. It's about... Asking, where is the intensity as we reach out and seek God? I want you to just have a look at the the passage again and see what it is that he shouted. It's all very well screaming something, but what did Bartimaeus call out? And he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He said, Jesus. Did you know? According to the Gospels, Bartimaeus is the first and only man or woman to call him Jesus. Did you know that? No one apart from Bartimaeus called Jesus Jesus. And it's surprising because we're so used to the name Jesus. We call him Jesus, don't we? We read the name Jesus in the passage many, many times, hundreds of times. In fact, there are 608 times that the name Jesus occurs in the Gospels. I know because I've counted all of them. And the only person, the first and only person to call 
Jesus by his personal name, his Bartimaeus. Just to give you the whole story, there are two occasions when he is, is referred to, he is addressed as Jesus, but they are by evil spirits rather than by people. No other person named him Jesus. It's very direct. It's very direct. It's very personal. It's a very almost intimate way of addressing him that people just didn't do. I think that would have got his attention. You imagine Jesus walking past in the crowd, and it was a big crowd. So we're talking hundreds or thousands of people. There's a lot of noise, all sorts of things being said and done and happening. But he heard the name, Jesus. Somebody's called me, Jesus. What else did he say? He called him son of David. This is a title. And that would have really got his attention as well, because for different reasons, son of David is the main title of the Messiah. It's not just one of the titles, it's the title of Messiah. And he wasn't the very first, but you know, he was also, Bartimaeus was one of the first people to call Jesus the son of David. In fact, son of David and healing the blind are very closely linked in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 12, it's, uh, we won't turn to it, but it's where he healed a blind man. And um, it was the first time where it caused people to ask the question, could this be the son of David? They were a, quite a tough crowd to please in Galilee. You know, it's, it's almost as if Jesus, when he came on the scene, he began to do certain things. He began to cast out demons, and that was good. And they were, you know, that's quite significant. But on the other hand, he wasn't the first person to cast out demons. That had already been happening. Um, but it was good. He healed lots of sick people. Well, that was good. Very good. Let's get the sick people to Jesus. Quick, get them healed. That's great. There's definitely something significant going on. Um, we'll have to admit that. Then he healed a paralyzed man. That's a nice one. And it's almost like they're going, have you got anything else, Jesus? And then he heals a blind man. And that's the point when they start saying, ah, hang on a minute. Could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? And that is because healing the blind was one of, if, and again, if not the main sign of Messiah. Jesus quoted from Isaiah. Um, there's a couple of prophecies in Isaiah and there's other places. But Jesus quoted one in Isaiah. You'll know it's very familiar when I start reading it. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. They knew and they were taught that when Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. And so they began to say, could this be the Messiah? And there's only one other time um, before Bartimaeus when Jewish men actually called Jesus by this title, son of David. And do you know who those men were? There were two of them. They were two blind men. It was in Galilee, so it's a different place. It was earlier on in the ministry of Jesus. But two blind men 
called him son of David. And then Bartimaeus and this other blind man called him son of David. Such a strong connection there. It was a different time and a different place, but it was the same pattern. They recognized, in other words, that he was the Messiah. It shows that there was faith rising, that they knew, they saw who he was, the son of David. The only other person, apart from when, at the very end, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and then everyone was sort of jumping on the bandwagon, Hosanna to the son of David. But until that time, it was only these blind men on two different occasions. And the only other time was a Canaanite woman. So she wasn't even Jewish. She recognized that he was the son of David, the Messiah. And called him by that title. So what was happening? So he's, he's called these things out. And Jesus actually stopped. The man who made Jesus Stop in his tracks. They were trying to silence him. It says that they were rebuking Bartimaeus. Again, it's, that's a strong word. It's not just, oh, shh, shh, be quiet, be quiet. They were really telling him off, rebuking him. Shut up. Who do you think you are? Be quiet. They tried to silence him, but he would not be silenced. And Jesus stopped. Jesus said, call him. Call him. Hmm. They had to change their tune, the people around him, very quickly. They had to suddenly become, oh, actually, he's calling you. Come on, come on, come and see him. He's calling you. It's like they changed their tune. They changed their tone of voice and everything and encouraged him to come to Jesus. He would not be put off. And Jesus... When he came to him, he said, what do you want me to do for you? Wouldn't it be great to hear Jesus standing in front of you and asking you that question? What do you want me to do for you? He'd asked that same question to his disciples in the same chapter, in fact, just before going into Jericho. Um, In chapter 10 of of Mark's gospel, verse 36. And the, the context is that Jesus has just told his disciples for about the third time explicitly and clearly that the reason they're going to Jerusalem is that he will be condemned to death. People will spit on him. People will flog him and they'll kill him. And the reaction of a couple of his disciples is, oh yeah, but yeah, but Jesus, can we just ask you something? We've got something to ask you. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? The same question. Sadly, They answered in terms of position and power and prestige and just missed the point completely. Bartimaeus answered better than they did. It makes you wonder who was the blind in this, this account, really. Who really were the blind people in this chapter, in chapter 10? Bartimaeus said, I want to see. Do you want to see? There's a... A spiritual application to this as well as the practical miracle that happened. I want to see Jesus. You may say, I want to see him glorified. I want to see the kingdom come. I want to see Jesus lifted high. I want to see the power of God amongst us. 
I want to see people saved in great numbers. I want to see Jesus face to face. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? It was in order to draw out this statement of faith from Bartimaeus. He asked a question. You know, when when God asks a question, there's usually two reasons. One of two reasons. It's either in order to get us to declare something out in faith. Or it's to get us to face something and realize something in ourselves. He never asks the question to find out information, of course, because he already knows the answer, doesn't he? So Bartimaeus, though being blind, he really already saw who Jesus was. He saw who he was, the Messiah. He saw that he could heal him. And there's something else. There's something else that Bartimaeus was the first person in the Bible to say, first person certainly in the Gospels to say. It doesn't come out very clearly in some of the translations, but he addressed Jesus with a very special word there. He actually said Rabboni, not Rabbi, but a lot of the versions say Rabbi or teacher. But the word he used was Rabboni might not be pronounced like that. Rabboni. It means my dear sweet teacher. That's how we address Jesus. My dear sweet teacher. The second time that word occurs, in other words, the second person to use that expression and that name for Jesus was Mary Magdalene. And it was in the garden after Jesus had been resurrected and Jesus was there speaking to her and she didn't even recognize who he was. Which is a bit strange, but hey. She didn't recognize who he was until he said, Mary. And at that moment she said, Rabboni. My dear, sweet teacher. You sense in that encounter, you sense the love of Mary Magdalene towards Jesus. And so hopefully it begins to make it clearer that this was the case here. We begin to sense the love that Bartimaeus had for Jesus. My dear, sweet teacher. I want to see. Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. Actually, again, the word is significant. The word that is used there is that for healed is sozo, Greek word sozo, which means much more than just he got his sight back. It means that he was saved, made whole, delivered, rescued. It's the root word for saviour. So personally, I think that Bartimaeus was saved at that point. You'll have to sort out the theology of that one, Richard. He was saved. 
Do you know, I guess the first thing that Bartimaeus saw when he received his sight was Jesus standing right in front of him. Jesus probably smiling at him. What a wonderful thing to happen. And he followed him on the road to Jerusalem. So just as trying to bring this to a a close, really, a conclusion is to think of what happened. You know, he followed Jesus and in, in the space of probably less than a week, he saw his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But he would have also been there to see him betrayed. He would have seen him beaten and crucified. And the face that he had first seen when he received his sight, he then saw beaten beyond recognition. I'm sure also that he would have been one of the disciples that saw Jesus when he was raised from the dead and appeared to all the various disciples. I don't know about you, I want to be the kind of man that's like Bartimaeus that can stop Jesus in his tracks. God, wouldn't that be good? We can learn from him. And the the key things there, as I just summarize this, is that he was determined to be heard. He was very direct in his plea. He cried out for mercy. Even that, that, that's a great prayer. Have mercy on me. We can get all kind of flowery and clever and have all sorts of wonderful prayers. He just said, have mercy on me. He didn't let people put him off. He would not be silenced. He had faith in Jesus, clearly. He had great love for Jesus. I think we can do a lot worse than follow the example of Bartimaeus, can't we? So do you want to get to that place where you hear the Lord say, what do you want me to do for you? And then you receive what you ask of him. Can I suggest that you are determined and direct in your plea? That you cry out for mercy. That you don't let anyone put you off from coming to him. Don't let anyone put you off. Don't be silenced. Put your faith in him. Grow in your love for him. And possibly most importantly, when you hear his voice, listen. And should be, be careful how you answer as well. I'm going to stop there. Amen. Grace and peace to you.